Donald Trump releases an on-brand plan called Opening Up America Again that gives governors leeway to open up the economy as early as May 1st. Governors are forming regional pacts, debating criteria to reopen slowly. But a team of Harvard epidemiologists this week published a paper that suggests that if we don't get this right, we could be looking at social distancing for another two years. This is America Dissected, and I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thankfully, it looks like the rate of new cases is starting to level off in some of the hardest-hit communities in the country. Though we've still had far too many cases and far too many lives lost, seeing the drop-off is heartening news. That good news is because of all of us. It's the direct result of our social distancing, slowing the spread of disease and giving our healthcare workers time to catch up. And of course, it's because of all of them. Courageous nurses, doctors, and hospital staff caring for people with COVID-19 under harrowing circumstances without even the basic supplies they need. But social distancing isn't the best. It's devastating our economy and our lives, however necessary it has and continues to be. So when can we get back to the gatherings and celebrations and lunches and, yeah, even meetings that are the substrate of our lives? When can social distancing end? Well, that's a technical question. And after all, we're doing this to limit the spread of disease. What's to keep it from spreading again when we're all back to touching each other and gathering close quarters? It'll require some combination of steady declines in COVID-19 cases, maintaining hospital capacity to care for any potential future surge in COVID-19, and as Governor Gavin Newsom of California puts it, Uh, The most important uh, framework uh, is our capacity to expand our testing, uh, to appropriately address uh, the tracing and tracking of individuals, the isolation and the quarantine of individuals using technology and using a workforce that needs to be trained in an infrastructure that needs to be in place. In one of our first episodes, we met John Auerbach, a public health expert who's worked at the local, state, and federal levels. We talked about how we had gotten so far behind on testing for COVID-19. The test for the coronavirus wasn't uh, working when it was distributed to the public health laboratories across the country. And in order to make testing more available around the country, those laboratories had to have the ability to test for the coronavirus. There was a a major problem with the test that meant the laboratories uh, weren't able to use it. And CDC wasn't able to correct that problem quickly. State and local governments, hospitals and nonprofits struggled to stand up drive-through testing facilities to start getting testing out. They call their physician. The physician determines if there's a need. They get an order. Then the patient would call our scheduling line and they would get an appointment. And I'm going to ask you to keep your windows up for the entire process. Though, I kid you not, federal support for these drive-through testing facilities ended last Friday. But our capacity to test people at scale remains one of the most important things we have to be able to do. Let me break down why. We've basically got three scenarios. Scenario one, which we'll call mass social distancing, is what we're doing right now, quarantining en masse until some yet-to-be-determined time. Scenario two, we'll call precision social distancing. Instead of everyone self-quarantining, we start to go back to our usual interactions with some caveats. What are they? First, we have to be able to identify every single case of COVID-19. After that, we have to be able to trace every single one of their contacts, people they could have exposed to coronavirus, and test them, and keep those who have tested positive away from the rest of society until they clear the virus. 
Instead of playing defense against COVID-19 like we've been this whole time, precision social distancing means going on the offense, tracking down the virus, and stomping it out. But to do precision social distancing, we need the personnel and the tests to trace every single contact and test them. And then there's scenario three, which we'll call the immunity scenario. In this scenario, 50 to 60% of people have to be immune to COVID-19 to stop the spread overall. That's because of herd immunity, which we discussed a while back. In some ways, this is the end game we're all waiting for. But the easiest and best way to get herd immunity is through a vaccine. And that's a long way off. But even though we may not have vaccines anytime soon, people are becoming immune another way, by actually getting the disease. And if they're immune, we don't have to worry about them spreading the disease. But we need to know if they are immune. And that requires another kind of test, called serology, which tests for antibodies, the body's immune markers. Our ability to know someone's immune status helps a lot with the precision social distancing scenario, because if someone's immune, we don't have to trace them anymore. So here we are. We all know we don't want to keep going with the mass social distancing scenario because it sucks. And a vaccine is a long way off, even though we do want to know who's acquired natural immunity by recovering from COVID-19. So that means we really need to hone in on precision social distancing. And that means we really, really need a lot more tests, both for COVID-19 and antibodies. And that's why we're not yet out of the woods with testing. And though media outlets aligned with the president have tried to revise history to say that testing has been A-OK, it hasn't. The fact is, we knew about this when the WHO went, December 31st, 2019. So last year, we knew about this. We knew coronavirus is coming. We knew it was a respiratory disease. We knew it was person-to-person. Why is it that it's this week that the FDA finally approved these kind of new Abbott lab testing, which, by the way, is one test at a time? That's wonderful, but it's not the same volume that you really need. This is better for kind of outpatient clinics and things like that. We needed this months ago. That's our next guest, Dr. Rishi Desai. He joins us to break down how we should be thinking about testing after the break. Dr. Rishi Desai is the chief medical officer at Osmosis, a company dedicated to the best possible learning experiences for clinicians and caregivers. He's also formerly an epidemic intelligence officer at the CDC. He joins us today to talk about the critical need for testing. So we actually started testing late. You know, if you look at the number of tests that happened day by day, I think through March, we had about a million tests. And then if you look at the first week of April, we did another million. So it scaled up quickly, but it scaled up late. And what happened is that the number of cases just exploded on us. And so we kind of got overwhelmed, almost like if you're in a fight, we, we got beat up quite bad in the first couple of months. And right now, mm-hmm. as we're seeing the flattening, we haven't won, just to be super clear, we've just started to fight back. And so this fight is now even for the first time, it's been even, uh, uh, it, it's been very one-sided up until now. So to answer your question, why are we still talking about testing? Why, why are we behind? Now that it's even, we need to start taking the advantage. And the way you do that is by isolating the virus, forcing the virus to not be able to infect others. The only way you can mm-hmm. isolate the virus is by knowing who has it. The only way you know who has it is by testing. So what we need to do is aggressively test, not just sick people, but test all the people that are spreading this virus around. Test people with mild mm-hmm. symptoms or, or maybe even no symptoms identify them quickly, isolate them, put them in their homes so they're not out on the streets infecting other people. And then what we're going to notice is that, by golly, this virus doesn't spread, right? So if the virus is not around other people, we finally start winning. 
what you're describing is sort of a, um, and I've, I've, I've sort of tried to describe it like this to folks, is a precision social distancing, right? That's what contract tracing kind of is. And um, in order to be able to do that, you need to know who you're going to socially distance. And in order to do that, you need to be able to test them, right? And we're seeing a number of different tests hit the market. Each of them has their own sort of uh, set of characteristics. Um, if you could describe, you know, as a former CDC epidemic intelligence officer, A, what the day-to-day of this work looks like, and B, what you're looking for in a test, I think it'd be really helpful for folks to be able to appreciate, like, what this work actually is. Sure, yeah. So uh, I love that phrase, precision social distancing. That's exactly it, right? So in the olden days, just to, I guess, underscore that point, we used to see someone with a problem in their leg and we'd chop off the leg. And that's what isolation or stay-at-home orders are. It's when you're overwhelmed, you just, everybody has to stay at home as a result. With testing, you can start being very, very precise about who has to stay at home and then let the rest of the economy open up. To your point about day-to-day, this is what it's like. So if you're in a situation where you don't know who has it, you go out there and you give them, let's say, a nose swab. First thing is, you know, who do you select to test? Do you select someone who's very sick? Do you select someone who's at, at high risk for being sick? Do you select the healthcare worker? If you have more tests available, you do all three. Then you get the results. And you're in a situation where you have to interpret what the results mean. So let's say you have results and you find out that they're positive. Well, that's helpful because now you can say, well, let's isolate this person. As long as you trust the positive. Every once in a while, you'll have a false positive. And in this situation, we tolerate false positives pretty well. We think, well, you know, it's not a big deal. If they're false positive, they have to stay at home for a little bit. All that means for you is that you're, you're going to stay home for 14 days. Exactly. And it's not ideal for that person to have a false positive. But in many ways, they wouldn't even know, right? They might think, well, maybe I'm asymptomatic and the test said I'm positive, so I'm positive. To catch that point for a second, and if the alternative is that all of us stay home indefinitely, it's a better scenario for us if a few people have to stay home for two weeks uh, that, that you know, may have been false positives. Exactly. Versus all of us have to stay home for two weeks or much longer, right? So clearly right. we'd prefer a few people having to pay this price of a false positive. On the false negative side, that's a little bit more tricky because that's where you're saying you're negative, you're good to go, but in fact they have COVID-19. So then they go out in the community, they think that they're good to go, the problem is now they might get worse. They think, well, you know what, uh, I don't have COVID, so who knows what this is, but I'm not going to go to the hospital. They already tested me. I'm negative. Or they might go and infect others. We want a test that is uh, quick, that if it has to have either a false positive or a false negative rate, it has a higher false positive rate than a false negative rate. Exactly. And, and the one word that captures that is sensitivity. We want something that's, that's right. highly sensitive and will pick up as many cases as possible. Now, that's one test. That's looking for the virus RNA, looking for whether you actually have it right now. The other test is serology. You know, you mentioned like what are the, all these tests coming out. Serologic tests are looking for antibodies, looking for proteins in your blood that show that at some point in the past you had the, the virus and that maybe, maybe it's still there in your body or maybe it's gone. Serology typically goes positive in a few weeks. So it takes a little bit longer. And it also has a sensitivity and a specificity. It also can have false positives and false negatives. So just as before, you want to have something that for serology is similarly really sensitive, ideally, um, versus specific. You can kind of assume that in, in, if you do have some false 
positives, um, that's okay. What you don't want is false negatives. And um, and serology, just for folks who don't uh, who don't know that what we're measuring is antibodies to tell us whether or not you've had the disease, and and therefore we presume you to be immune. Precisely, yeah, exactly. So serology is just a fancy word for antibodies. And and here's the thing. You can now think about combining tests. What if we did both in a person and said, hey, you know what? If you had RNA or you had evidence of antibodies, either one, and I'm going to call you positive. Once you start combining tests, the sensitivity goes up because now you're, ha- you're, you're really approaching the, the human body from two different angles. And maybe you'll miss some people with the virus RNA because of the way you sampled or maybe the swab didn't catch it for whatever reason, but the blood did. So this is what I mean by boosting sensitivity by using multiple tests on the same person is that anything that comes back positive you regard as a positive so rishi we um you know we are are to the point now where we're fighting an even fight with covid-19 and we're hopefully to the point where we're close to hitting the peak meaning we've flattened quote unquote the curve and for us to be able to come out of um perpetual social distancing we're going to need these tests uh what's stopping us from having these tests at scale so that we can actually get to the point where we're doing precision social distancing instead of mass social distancing. The biggest holdup was that initially the CDC said, hey, all instead of using this WHO test, uh, which I believe started out in Germany, instead of using that one, we're going to use our own test. We're going to make our own. And, it, and we really want you to use ours. So the public health lab said, okay, sounds good. Send them over. What they sent were faulty tests. They didn't work. A lot of them didn't work. And so what we ended up with was a handful of tests that did work. And that's really what we had for the month of February and parts of March. Then the government said, okay, you know what? We realized we rolled this out in a way that was completely ineffective in terms of the scale we need. Let's allow those non-government groups to help us out. Let's give them essentially emergency use authorization, EUA. And once these companies started getting these EUAs uh, cleared, it basically says, you know, we have rules, but in times of emergency, we're going to bypass some of those rules to allow you to get to market quickly. So once that happened, that's when we hit scale. That happened in kind of mid-March and rolling into late March. So by first week of April is finally when we're at the level we needed to be at. It's not like we didn't have the capacity before. It's not like we didn't have the interest before. We had all that. What we didn't have was the federal permission. So the FDA had to allow us to use these EUAs, and that permission didn't happen until mid or late March. And it strikes me, though, that we're still behind where we need to be in terms of having the volume of either of these tests to be able to um, move to precision social distancing instead of mass social distancing. What's the holdup? Now, why aren't we able to stockpile the number of tests that we need now um, so that we can get to that point where, you know, when uh, we decide to let folks, you know, back out um, that, you know, we can start rolling out these tests as we need them? So so it's not just at the federal level. I talked about the federal government being slow on the EUAs. Here's another problem. Let's say that you're a university and you have the capacity to do 50,000 tests. And you've heard that there's a hospital down the street that's looking for more testing. So you say, hey, hospital, I can do 50,000 tests for you. Believe it or not, in many places, the hospital will say no. They'll say, no, we can't accept your testing. And you say, well, why? It's free. There's, there's no money issue. Like, why can't you accept my test? And they'll say, well, two reasons. One, you're not a vendor with us. 
We've never had a, a licensing agreement with you. So even though you're offering these things for free, we have a uh, an obligation to our patients, and we have a set of vendors we work with. And you're not one of you're not on the list, frankly. And getting you on the list takes what two months, three months. And our our person in charge of contracts is out with COVID nineteen. And we're all working on Zoom now. Look, this is not going to happen in any timeline that's going to be helpful to you. So you you kind of walk away frustrated. Sometimes that's not the issue, but there's another issue. Another issue is you're telling me we're going to send health data across a software platform that is not going to interface with our software platform. So we use, let's say we use Epic or we use Cerner or whatever, and you're a, you know academic center, you use your own software platform. These two things have to have an API that, that fits. And that data has to be transferred in a safe way so we don't lose patient confidentiality. These are logistic issues, right? They're not testing issues. But these logistic issues explain why, even as we scale up testing capacity, we still see hiccups and the scaling isn't happening as fast as it could or should happen for, for really frustrating reasons like, oh, it's not on the vendor list or, oh, your two software systems can't comply with one another. Because what's happened is our healthcare system is fragmented, absolutely fragmented. And we're using all every hospital has its own sort of, you know, home cooked way of making, you know, the data work and having patients work through. And so if you're trying to centralize this and create solutions, you literally have to find a solution for each hospital that's out there that that hospital will like. And this is why it's not happening at scale the way that it would happen if we had a nationalized healthcare system. You know, we're literally COVID-19 is taking advantage of the fragmentation that already exists. Yeah. So we've got these these operational barriers that exist because, in effect, every hospital operates on its own. Um, and there is no centralized clearinghouse for uh, either medical information or payment. And so... Uh, when every hospital is left to fend for itself as a vendor, fend for itself um, in terms of uh, the way that it, it manages and moves information, um, you end up having the non-compatibility across these systems. And, you know, it speaks to something we've talked quite a bit about on, on this podcast, about the the fundamental vulnerability in which we found ourselves uh, as a healthcare system, both you know, the lack of access to healthcare for patients and then also um, the, the problems with the way that we move money and information in the healthcare system uh, that leave it vulnerable uh, to something like this. You, you had a, um, a uh, now, now quite famous back and forth with a Fox News anchor about the way that this was managed. And uh, the reason I bring this up now is because it speaks to the, the, the collision between politics and public health. Um, and, you know, th- this, this anchor really wanted to sort of massage the history uh, one could say revise the history on what actually happened. And you pushed back really strongly um, to articulate uh, what actually did happen. And can you explain um, why it's so important for us to make sure that the narrative is actually truthful and what the implications are for the the kind of political consequences there are of something like this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I think is common between you and I and also the Fox News anchor person is that we're all we're all looking out for our families and our friends. And we basically want to make sure that we all get through COVID-19 safe and sound. Um, and also economically, we want to make sure we all have jobs at the end of all this. So every human being that's going through this has the same core personal interests. And one of the things that we need to figure out is how to avoid this in the future. And this is going to happen again. Another crisis is going to hit healthcare or public health. Uh, certainly pandemics are going to occur again. And we need to learn lessons from this so that we don't suffer. And in fact, 
In fact, with COVID-19, as we start realizing that we're flattening the curve, the next question, of course, is when do we reopen the country? And, and I'll tell you what, when we, whenever that happens, we're all going to be on high alert for the next case. And when that hits, and it will hit, we're going to have cases. Of course, this has already happened in other countries that have opened up their, their, uh, their rules. We're going to have to figure out how to respond again. So this is going to keep happening. And I think learning lessons from what did happen, you know, talk about revising history, learning lessons from what happened, I think will help us react more smartly the next time around. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think that's absolutely right is that, um, you know, this is, this is sort of shown our vulnerabilities for what they are. And for folks who want to revise history such that we don't learn the lessons of that history and turn it into a future where we're all a little bit more secure, then we'll have missed the opportunity. I, um, I also know that, you know, you do a lot of work on, uh, on, on educating both the public and also health professionals through your work at Osmosis. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that work? And, uh, and I know that you guys have uh, made your, your work more available to the public in, in this moment. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, um, and, and how that's helping to, uh, to take this, this, this pandemic on? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that's very clear to me is that not only do people worry about, you know, getting COVID-19 and the the medical science around COVID-19, but there's a lot of anxiety around COVID-19. And the way that I think you combat anxiety is with information. You know, I've always been very uh, impressed with how well people handle the truth, as long as they understand the truth. And so our resource page on COVID-19 really breaks it down in a very clear and easy to understand way that I think anybody can kind of get some, uh, you know, value out of both from the science part of it, but also just feeling more comfortable with, with what's going on for our country and the world. So those resources are at osmosis.org slash COVID-19. They're made for the general public. They're also made for uh, doctors, nurses, and, and other health professionals. Really grateful to you. Appreciate you uh, coming on and, and your leadership in this time and, uh, and hope that, uh, that we get to catch up soon. And then the last question we always ask everybody is, you know, how are you spending your uh, days? What do you, uh, what is your COVID-19 life look like? That's a, that's a good question. I have a, <laughs> it makes me smile and laugh and cough, but I have a three-year-old son. And so my COVID-19 life with my three-year-old son, my wife, is that we now do a lot more um, board games. We do a lot more drawing, uh, a lot more playing around the house. Uh, I throw them under the couch, things like that. So that's what my home life is like with COVID-19, just a lot more time with my family. Well, we're wishing you uh, safety and good health in in this moment and uh, hope that we get to catch up soon, okay? Thank you for inviting me. This is awesome. Before we go, I want to hear from you. We'll be having a special guest on in a few weeks. He spent the last two years advocating for giving every American a basic income. Here's a hint. This is the move that we have to make, particularly as technology is now automating away millions of American jobs. Well, that's finally happening. Kinda. We want to know how you're spending your check. Email us a voice memo at americadissected at crooked.com, and you might hear your own voice on our episode with Andrew Yang. As usual, on our way out, I want to tell you what I'm watching right now. Some of the hardest-hit communities are finally over the peak. At least, that's how it seems. That said, that's still tenuous. Social distancing is still critical to keeping it that way. So will people continue to socially distance so that we can see our sustained declines in cases over the next two weeks? As we discussed, antibody tests are being rolled out, but slowly. And early indications suggest that the tests may be of variable quality. 
Will we see the same fumbles we saw with the first COVID-19 tests mar our ability to get reliable information to people at the scale that we need? If you'd like to support organizations leading the fight to support our most vulnerable during this pandemic, donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. I'll see you on Tuesday with another update. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takaya Suzawa and Alex Uguiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. Thanks for listening. Friends, if you're enjoying this podcast, I hope that you'll check out my book, Healing Politics. I diagnose an epidemic of insecurity underneath this pandemic. I hope you'll check it out at healingpoliticsbook.com.